Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. to start this morning by reading a, what might be a familiar text in the Gospel of Luke, but I want to read it from the uh, message paraphrase, because sometimes when we hear a story from Scripture, maybe in a, in a, in a way that we don't typically read it, it kind of brings us in with kind of a fresh, fresh eyes. So Luke chapter seven, Jesus is invited over to a Pharisee's house. His name's Simon, and and here's what the text reads. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus over for a meal. He went down to the Pharisee's house, and he sat down at the dinner table. Just then, there's this woman of, of the village, the town harlot, having learned that Jesus was a guest in the home of the Pharisee, came with a bottle of very expensive perfume and stood at his feet, weeping, raining her tears on his feet. Letting down her hair, she dried his feet, kissed them, and anointed them with the perfume. When the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man was the prophet that I thought he was, he would have known what kind of woman this is who's falling all over him. And Jesus said to him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Simon said, oh, tell me. Two men were in debt to a banker. One owed 500 silver pieces, the other 50. Neither of them could pay up, and so the banker canceled both of the debts. Which of the two would be more grateful? Simon answered, I suppose the one who was forgiven the most. That's right, Jesus said. Then turning to the woman, but speaking to Simon, he said, do you see this woman? I came to your home, you provided no water for my feet, but she rained tears on my feet and dried them with her hair. You gave me no greeting, but from the time I arrived, she hasn't quit kissing my feet. You provided nothing for freshening up, but she has soothed my feet with perfume. Impressive, isn't it? She was forgiven many, many sins, and so she is very, very grateful. If the forgiveness is minimal, the gratitude is minimal. Then he spoke to her, I forgive your sins. That set the dinner guest talking behind his back. Who does he think he is forgiving sins? He ignored them and said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. It's an interesting, interesting story. And you've got two characters in the story outside of Jesus that that are seen in this moment, and you've got Jesus who's there has been invited to a meal at a Pharisee's house, and so Jesus goes, and this woman shows up. You've got Simon the Pharisee, and, and what we know of the Pharisees is that the Pharisees were kind of the spiritual fathers of, of the Jewish religion at that time. They were experts in the Torah and the oral tradition of Moses. They were known for their deep piety to God, their deep devotion to God. And then you have this woman, we don't get her name, and it it says that she was a woman of the city. She's described in, in, in in the original language as a sinner, and that's come off in interpretation and in our different translations and paraphrases as possibly a prostitute. 
Um, sinners were a, a, a range of people, anywhere from a tax collector to a prostitute. They were all kind of thrown into the same bucket of being sinners, kind of those who were seen as being uh, rebels and, and, and people you don't want to spend any time with. But here this woman comes into the, to the, to the house of Simon the Pharisee, and I would say with gratitude toward Jesus, and I would even say costly gratitude, because she brings this ointment and pours it out on Jesus' feet, which was costly for her, costly for anyone at that time. Not only that, but she had this extravagant passion. Um, if, if you, if, and I think we kind of miss a little bit of the story in this because we don't live and walk around in the same context that Jesus would have been walking around because, because again, they didn't, he didn't have footwear like, like that we have and, and they didn't have the, the type of plumbing that we have. And so it was, it was customary that when people visited your home, a at least nominal host would provide some water to wash feet because your feet walking in town would have been walking through probably feces, uh, all kinds of things like that. And so uh, your feet weren't very clean and there wasn't a lot of protection there. Oftentimes you were wearing sandals and so, so uh, you, you had that. And, and, and so remotely decent hosts would, would offer water. And, and Jesus makes a comment to Simon. He says, I came in and you gave me nothing even to wash my feet. Yet this woman, with her tears on Jesus' feet and her face close to his feet, close enough for her hair to wipe his feet, um, that kind of brings a different visual image, doesn't it? That that's what's going on here. That's pretty extravagant and extreme for a person to do. And, and, and so you've got this picture of these two different people. In fact, it's interesting at the end the people who are there at dinner with, with Jesus are offended by this woman's extravagant adoration of Jesus. Like that it's too much. It's not appropriate. And it's interesting to me that to look between those two people and, and, and ask the question, who was pursuing intimacy with Jesus? And I think the Pharisee represents many, many people who see Jesus as an opportunity to benefit them somehow. Kind of like that Jesus is a friend with benefits. No commitment, but, but I get all the benefits from Jesus. I get opportunities. Maybe he gets me into exclusive clubs. Maybe he, he gets me into some things that, that I, want, I want to be seen in a certain way. And that does seem like that's kind of what Simon's mentality was. But then you've got the woman who sees Jesus as the very reason she can live and breathe. I mean, she just pours herself out. No, no self-respect, no concern about what she's gonna be, be seen as, no concern about what people are gonna say, but she just pours herself out because she, she sees Jesus as, as the very essence of her life and her, her breath. You see, intimacy with God is the purpose of our lives. It's what God created us for. It, it's, it's, it's why he made humanity, is, is to have an intimate relationship with him. He didn't create us simply to believe in him, although it's important to believe in God. But that's not why he created us. 
He didn't create us simply to obey him, although obedience follows an experience with Jesus, a true experience with Jesus, but he didn't create us just to be obedient to him. He created us to have an, have an intimate relationship with him, to, to, to love him, to know him, that, that, our, that our lives would be lived in an in intimate relationship with him. Not just this idea of duty that I'm gonna obey Jesus. And yeah, obedience can be hard, but obedience is a lot easier when you have a deep and, 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 and consistent relationship with someone. It's different. It's not because I have to, it's because I love them. And, and, and so it really we see this, this pursuit of intimacy at the very beginning. This isn't something that God changed. This is from the very beginning. And so we see in the garden, Adam and Eve walked and he talked with God. Like that was visibly different. That that God walked and talked with Adam and Eve. He met them every morning, spent time with them. They talked, they had experiences together. It wasn't that just they, they they felt like they had a duty to God, but, but they, they had a relationship. And even when, when they sinned and hid from him, in which they didn't do a great job of hiding, they're like a three-year-old hiding behind a broomstick in the middle of the room, but, but even when they hid from them, he pursued them with relationship. Throughout Scripture in the Old and New Testament, we, we see this language of relationship and depth of relationship. And in 2 Chronicles 15, 2, it says to one of the kings, Asa, it says, hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. In Jeremiah 24, 7, the prophet says, I will give them, speaks for God, and he says, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord. Notice he says, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord. That's like deep feeling language, isn't it? He doesn't say, I will give them a brain to know the precepts of the Lord. He says, I will give them a heart to know the Lord. And they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole heart. Not just that, that, they've, that they've got a piece of heart, but, but their whole heart is pursuing Jesus is pursuing God in a relationship with him. In Zechariah 1, 3, it says, therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. James 4, 8, James writes, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So he says, look, draw near to God and God will draw near to you. And he talks about it being a heart and a mind thing. And then in Hebrews 10, 22, it says, let us draw near with a true heart. Same language as in the Old Testament as in the New Testament. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus in John 17, when he prays in the presence of his disciples to his father, one of the things he says in John 17, three, he says, and this is eternal life that they know you, Father, the only true God, and that they know Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And he did, notice he doesn't say just that they would believe in God, but that they would know God. 
They would know him in a profound and significant and a deep way. So, so just to be clear, we are not only just created for relationship with God, but as Jesus says in John 17, we are created for an intimacy equaling that of, the son, of Jesus the Son and God the Father. Like an intimacy that is equal to, as intense as, as significant as Jesus' relationship with his Father, the Trinity, that, that Jesus and the Father are one. So what Jesus is saying is that the desire, the, the goal of God, his heart for us is that we are as intimate with him as Jesus is, as he is with himself. And that's been from the beginning and that's never changed. It's not about what I believe. It's not about whether I obey Although those things fall in line, don't they, within a relationship of intimacy. And, and so as, as, we, as we begin kind of a journey, which I don't know if, if some people might say like, okay, I, I, know, I know this stuff, like of, of pursuing intimacy with Jesus. I, I think what we'll find is that we have in a lot of ways taken the the practices that God has given to us and we've actually turned them so that they work to our benefit rather than they actually draw us into a deep and abiding presence with Jesus and an intimate relationship with him. And so over the next few months, we're gonna be working our way toward intimacy with Jesus and the things that he's called us to do that will, will result in embodying the character that he's called us to and will result in an intimate relationship with Jesus like that of Jesus, the Son, and God the Father. And so we're gonna be primarily kind of anchored in Matthew chapter six over the next three months. But I wanna give you a bit of a roadmap, an understanding of why we're doing this and why this is important. In Matthew chapter five, Jesus begins preaching to his disciples and the crowds that have gathered around him. And and, and Matthew 5 through 7 is called the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew 5, the very beginning of that message, Jesus gives us what we call the Beatitudes, the blessed are and they will. Talking about how really the character that Jesus calls us to embody And so the first 12 verses of Matthew 5 are about what Jesus expects from everyone who follows him. And then we we move into verse 13 and to the rest of chapter 5. And it's interesting because what Jesus does there, he basically says, hey, and, and that character that I just described is going to look different than you think it looks. Because Jesus constantly in in the rest of Matthew 5 says, You've heard it said, or you've thought this way, but I say to you something completely different. And so what he's saying is what you think that character looks like, it doesn't look like that. It looks like this. Your best thinking is God's worst thinking. (laughs) Your smartest day doesn't even get to God's worst day. I don't know that God has worse days. (laughs) Uh, but, but, but what Jesus does is he says, look, it's going to look different. And then in Matthew 6, Jesus does something really interesting. He, he, he gives what I, I would call the when yous. And he says, 
when you give, when you pray, and when you fast. He doesn't give commands in Matthew 6. He makes assumptions about what our activity is because we follow him. He doesn't say, you have to start doing these things. He says, when you do them. It's kind of like when, when you have affection for someone. If you, are, if you have affection, if you have a desire for someone else, have you ever had to ask the question, hey, should I spend time with them in their presence? You are, way, you, are, you are way worse off than you think if that is your first question when you have affection for someone. Should I be around them? No. Maybe the question that you could ask is, when I'm, when I'm around them, what are, I need some advice. That's, that's, so, so the assumption is that if you have affection for someone, you're going to be near them. Maybe the advice you need is what to do when you are around them. And so Jesus says very clearly, says, look, when you give... When you pray, when you fast. And, and those are practices that God calls us to, that Jesus calls us to, basically to embody the character that he wants from us. Basically, these practices that we're going to be unpacking are practices that will get us to embody the character that Jesus describes in Matthew chapter 5. Because if I am consistently meditating on the word of God and I am giving in the way that God calls me to give and I'm praying and I'm fasting, then those things will put me into a position and give me a posture that that character that is impossible for me to accomplish myself. Because let's be honest, none of us are honestly merciful to those who don't deserve mercy. I mean, we might visibly be that way with people who don't deserve our mercy, but inside, it's, it's a different story, isn't it? <laughs> and and, so, and, and so, so we can't achieve the character that Jesus expects from us unless we become intimate with him and we surrender ourselves. So over the next few months, we'll be unpacking how we go about pursuing intimacy with Jesus. This morning, I want to talk a little bit about that character that Jesus is calling us toward, because it's, it's kind of this connected piece, that as we practice these things that Jesus called us to, what we will be, what his goal, what his desire is, is for us to embody the character that he speaks about in Matthew chapter 5, 1 through 12. So as I said, the Beatitudes are the most succinct and clear description of what Jesus desires from anyone and everyone who follows him. There is no better description of what you and I, if we follow Jesus, should embody than Matthew 5, 2 through 12. There's no better succinct description. There's no better anchor. There's no better foundation. There's no more important visual but what Jesus says here. But it's interesting, you know, what do we do with the Beatitudes? What do we kind of do with those? You know, I, I think historically, as evangelicals, we tend to fall on the side of passively ignoring them. <laughs> kind of when our backs are against the wall, we, the question is, are, are we characterized by these things Jesus describes? 
And I'm going to say in general, no. (laughs) Because let's be honest, last time somebody came at you, what did you do? Last time you were persecuted for righteousness sake, were you a peacemaker? The last time somebody insulted you or didn't believe everything that you believe, were you a peacemaker? Or did you make sure they understood what you believed? Did you make sure they were clear on why they're wrong? And again, there's, there's this thing that we have all of these issues in our minds. We say, well, but what about truth? What about Jesus? Jesus is truth. And, and, and the thing is, we tend to contextualize with all of our other ideologies and our ideas and our, and our, and our preferences and our desires, and we, we kind of shift what Jesus is saying. You know, it's, it's interesting. We, we tend to fixate on what is our, in our perceived best interest and give the rest of Scripture a cursory glance. And in a lot of ways, at least I grew up in a, in a context where we pride ourselves with taking the Bible as the inspired word of God, inerrant and literal, but we take serious things Jesus says and treat them as, as poetic or, or as, uh, as, as suggestions or, or, or figurative or, or all kinds of things. You see, the Beatitudes are words of celebration for the disciple of Jesus who's been awakened by the present power of the age yet to come. The Beatitudes are actually a celebration for those who are disciples of Jesus and if they, they have been hit, they have been impacted by the power that God has of the coming king, the kingdom that's here and not yet. And they live in that celebration. For others, the Beatitudes are words of invitation to a crowd those people who come to worship just out of tradition or out of curiosity or out of skepticism, they are an invitation to step into relationship with Jesus. And yet for, for some, but what should be for all, the Beatitudes are words of transformation by the power and the mercy of God. Really what these words are, they are transformation, that we should look like these, we should embody these things. What are they for you? Are these words of celebration? Or do you see them as hard words that, oh, I don't know, I need to grin and bear it. Or you're skeptical or cynical. Or are they words of transformation? That they are making you something that you never dreamed you could be. I want to read just the first 12 verses. Starting in verse two. And Jesus opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you 
when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for, they, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As, as, I, look at, as I look at these statements that Jesus make, makes, I, I feel like I can maybe do a general summary of, of how they flow the, the, first, the, first three, the first three beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are meek, those are all terms that relate to humility. Basically what Jesus is saying is blessed are you when you are identified and characterized by humility, a humility that you have to pursue. It takes work. Humility is, is seen in a person who recognizes their brokenness. A person who can mourn boldly about their brokenness and about the brokenness in the world around them. It's interesting because some of us, our first instinct when we see the brokenness in the world around us is to be angry. Jesus walked onto the mountain as he was entering into Jerusalem and his first reaction to seeing Jerusalem in sin and brokenness was to weep. And then meekness is this idea of, of being, having power, but having that power self-disciplined. Not actually using that power when you can. So those are all words that describe humility. And then hunger and thirst after righteousness, mercy, pure in heart. Those, those are terms of justice. Hunger and thirst after righteousness, that there is a right and a wrong in life. It's not just up for grabs. And that right and wrong is defined by God himself, not by us, not by our sensitivities, not by our feelings, not by our preferences, but by God's righteousness. That's an issue of justice. Mercy is connected to justice. You may, you may have, the, have the ability to bring judgment on someone, but God calls us to have mercy. And pure in heart, injustice exists because there is not purity in heart in humanity. And then the last, the last three are... Jesus says, blessed are, are the peacemakers. Blessed are you when you are persecuted. Blessed are you when you are insulted. And that's all about peace. And so if you want to summarize the Beatitudes into just three simple things, it's pursue humility, justice, and peace. And you cannot pursue one of those at the expense of the other. And if you want to know how to achieve those, then read the Beatitudes. They're all about humility, justice, and peace. And, and so really, when you look at the Beatitudes and read them, they are an indictment of every culture, of every people group, and every government in all of human history, bar none. You see, when Jesus spoke these words first, he indicted he indicted the religious leaders and the temple system by uttering these words. And at the same time, with the same words, he indicted the Roman Empire. How is it that the, the Jewish temple 
which is God's house on earth, it's where God reveals himself in the Old Testament, how is the temple and the Roman Empire indicted by the same words of Jesus? It's because we have an amazing ability to slide far, far from the heart of Jesus. And not only did Jesus' words indict the temple and the Roman Empire in the day that he uttered them, but today Jesus indicts our churches and our nation with the same exact words. It's no different. It's, it's funny how we like to think that, well, man, we're so different than, you know, the, 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 the Pharisees in the Jewish temple, we're not. We like to think that, well, America's so different than the, than the Roman Empire, we're not. <laughs> Jesus' words puts us into the same bucket on the same level playing field and says, look, what Jesus makes clear is that, that the values in his kingdom, the kingdom in which we are citizens of, is not of this world and can never be until the new heaven and earth is established by his return. I mean, different cultures and different nations might embody some little element of the kingdom of God, but they are not, (laughs) and they will never. That will never happen until Jesus returns and establishes the new heaven and the new earth. And so the ask this morning, what I'm asking you to do if you're part of the Crosspoint family, if, if, if you are here and part of this fellowship, what I'm asking you to do, um, here's the thing, we're not going to unpack the Beatitudes here on Sunday morning in church. What I'm asking you to do is something that is much more of an ask than you to sit and listen to a handful of sermons on some verses What I'm asking you to do is to study the Beatitudes every single day for the next 40 days until February 18th. I mean, you can go further than that, but but just as something to do as a corporate people who follow Jesus, that for the next 40 days, every single day, at the bare minimum, that you will get up and you will read Matthew 5, 1 through 12. That's the bare minimum that I would ask. My suggestion is that you not just read it through, which will take probably less than a minute, is that you'll actually meditate on it, study it, spend time letting the Spirit speak to you and getting to know the character that Jesus is calling you to. If you're kind of like, well, you know, I don't know, I, I, I don't know if I can just read and sit there and, and, and here, here's the thing, most of us have the uh, YouVersion Bible app on our phones or our devices, if you go to plans on the U version and you hit plans and you type in the search bar, Beatitudes, it will come up with 10, like 10 different reading plans that go and stick directly with the Beatitudes, anywhere from seven-day plan to a 40-day plan. You could go through all eight plans if you want. <laughs> but that's a good place to start if you're like, I don't know what to do with this. But, but, but the challenge is this, that, that we will be immersing ourselves in what Jesus tells us that we are to be for the next 40 days. 
And, one, and a guess that I have, just one possibility that I think is pretty likely is that you will see your behavior start to change or you will have a harder time being who you are today. It'll be a whole lot harder for you to say something stupid that you'll regret to someone else because you wake up and every day you spend time in the Beatitudes. You will say less selfish and foolish things on social media if you spend time every day listening to what Jesus wants from you and the things that you need to let go of. You will have better relationships with others. I believe if every day you spend significant time hearing from Jesus and the Holy Spirit as the character that you need to have. Because, and and this is why I'm asking this. As we unpack the practices to, to increase our intimacy with Jesus, we need to know what he's doing in us. And we need to be positionally in a place where we can receive that. And I think that doing these practices and meditating on God's word, which is one of the practices, but meditating specifically on the Sermon on the Mount will help us to become who Jesus has called us to become. And so kind of looking ahead, as I said, we'll kind of be anchored in Matthew chapter six and we'll be in another, uh, other places throughout scripture. But Matthew six is where Jesus says, when you do these things, here's, here's some pointers. When you practice these things, and so the intimacy practices that we are going to be focusing on is, first we'll be, be, be focusing on meditating on the word, meditating on God's word. And each of these practices deal with a particular temptation, sin, idol that we have by God's design because humans don't change. We have the same issues throughout all of history. And so meditating on the word of God breaks down my intellectual pride and arrogance. You cannot meditate on the word of God and still think highly of yourself. Now, thinking highly of yourself and having joy are two different things. You cannot meditate on the word of God and not find great and increasing joy. David says in the Psalms, meditating on your words is a delight. David calls reading God's words joy. See, meditating on God's word will break our intellectual arrogance and will destroy our pride. And what we'll be left with isn't broken pieces, but we'll be left with wholeness and unbelievable joy. Jesus says, when you give, giving the way Jesus calls us to give breaks up the grip of the economy or money on my life and it breaks the grip of the rebel kingdom that I am building in my life. When we give the way Jesus calls us to give, it breaks that apart. And right now, you can't find anything, an article or news report about the economy that doesn't talk about inflation and what a terrible thing this is. And, and you know what, it does kind of stink 
that our money's not worth what it maybe was at some point and that there's all these issues gonna be. But for someone who's a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, inflation, no matter how bad it gets, should never create a crisis. It can be a concern. It can be something that you are frustrated with. But it should never create a crisis. Why? Because God's kingdom cannot be thwarted. And chances are good, if if inflation is a crisis for you right now, chances are good that that has a grip on your life. And Jesus is calling you to give and be more generous to break the grip of the economy and inflation on your life. Jesus says, when you pray, prayer breaks down my self-dependence and assures me that I am not alone. You see, when we regularly practice prayer, it breaks down my own thoughts that I am dependent and, and I am the ultimate end of myself and I am dependent and I am, you know, if you wanna get something done, you gotta do it yourself. If you want something really done for eternity, you need to let God do it. (laughs) And prayer also reminds us that we are never at any point in our life, no matter how we feel, we are never alone. He's always with us. And finally, when you fast, fasting, fasting crushes my entitlement and the grip that my rights have on me. That's what fasting does. And I think that's why, in a lot of ways, our culture is so messed up, even in the church, because we've by and large, ignored fasting. That's why rights are such a hot-button issue for us. See, it's interesting. I, I, I have become convinced that we don't have rights. Our rights have us. I know that, that I have grown up and I've been in a context that rights are super important. Rights are guaranteed and that I have rights, but what I've realized is in a lot of ways that I've seen in my own life and seen in others' lives is we don't have rights. Our rights have us, and they make demands on us, and they create a character in us that does not resemble what Jesus described. When our rights own us, we will not embody what Jesus describes in the Beatitudes. And so fasting begins to break the grip that they have on us. Here's the thing, though. If our practices do not result in an intimacy with Jesus or a character that reflects what he wants, then our practices are empty and worthless. Now, I'm not saying that prayer and fasting and giving and meditating on Scripture is worthless or or empty, but we can make it that. I mean, how many, how, many, how many of you, like maybe even in your family, before you sit down to eat a meal and, and we you know, kind of do the traditional praying before we eat, how many people can say the exact words that you say every time you pray for a meal? In a lot of ways, our prayers for our meals have become very rote and, and not even thoughtful. And I know I, I've, been, I've been a huge, I've, I've been one of the, the biggest ones on this. One of the things we decided in our family is is when we have dinner together in the evening, we don't pray before the meal, we pray after the meal. We have a little bit of time to think about what we're thankful for and and then we grab a Christmas card that we've received from somebody and throughout the year we grab those and then we pray for those people as part of our evening meal after we've eaten. And, And even that can become rote. So we have to be on our guard 
prayer, fasting, meditating on scripture. There, how many, there's people that we know. I mean, no, no one in here. But there's people out there in churches who, 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 are in, who know everything, can quote scripture like crazy. But they're some of the worst people. No one wants to be around them. I'm pretty sure that meditating on scripture and God's word has become worthless in their life. And, and so the reality, just because we're doing these practices doesn't mean we're gaining intimacy with Jesus. We have to be intentional. This morning, we're gonna participate in communion together, and I think that's also a great example. It's a fantastic example. Communion is a practice that draws us into intimacy with Jesus. Does your practice of communion result in greater intimacy with Jesus? I think it's interesting, you know, a couple years ago, got hit by this pandemic and such. Lots of our things changed. And when we came back, we, here at Crosspoint, we now have the little packets of communion. Now, to be honest, for those who are a little bit germophobic, you were always grossed out on communion Sunday. (laughs) And feared for your life. (laughs) But it's interesting. If communion, the act of communion, really was something that we saw as an intimacy with Jesus, does the delivery agent matter? But so many of us, some jokingly and some seriously, we're focused on the, on the delivery agent. And I would say that communion in a lot of ways became worthless and empty. I want you to listen in, in Luke chapter 22. Listen to what Jesus says as he institutes communion in a small room, not at a church, but in a small room having a meal with his disciples. Jesus says in Luke 22, he says, I have earnestly, listen to the words he uses, I earnestly desire to eat this meal with you before I suffer. What, those words are intimate words, aren't they? I earnestly desire to eat this meal with you before I suffer. I'm going into a time of great suffering, my worst moments, and I have eagerly, earnestly, I have so driven and desired to eat this meal with you. Those are relational words. Those are not duty. Those are not procedure. Those are, I need you. And I desperately want to share this meal with you. And then he says, take this cup. This cup reminds you of the coming kingdom in which you will be a part of. Then it says he broke the bread and gave thanks and gave it to them. And and, and really he said, look, this is my body that's broken for you. Remember our relationship. Remember what intimacy with you has cost me. And he says, take the cup. He says, this is my covenant, the covenant of my relationship with you. That I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll be with you always. And when you drink this, regardless of how it's delivered, Remember that I covenanted with you relationally. 
that you will be part of my family forever. When you put communion in the context that Jesus spoke of it, we could be pretending to take something and it would result in intimacy. Because it's not about what we're doing. It's about the intimacy of that moment of remembering who Jesus is and his incredible love for us. But you know why I know that communion can be wrote and worthless? Because the minute after he participated in communion with Jesus in the flesh, Judas went out and let the economy run his life. The moment Judas walked out, after this eagerly desired moment with Jesus, he let his concerns about the economy make the decisions for him. So it's possible. That's why what we're doing and where God is leading us is so important. Because we cannot afford to be like Judas. And the the danger is that we look at the act that Judas did, we don't look at the heart that he had. Prayer, fasting, giving, meditation on God's word, communion, that all was part of Judas's life. But it didn't result in intimacy. Don't let that happen to you. And so this morning, we're gonna share together communion. And I would challenge you that as we do this, let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Make a commitment to study, to meditate on the Beatitudes every day for the next 40 days. And let our celebration of communion this morning draw you closer to Jesus. Father, we thank you for this morning. God, I thank you that you are so clear about what, about who we are called to be. And God, it's so easy for us to get off track. It's so easy for us to take these things that you have so generously and have cost you so much to give us and we just treat them like our rights and entitlements. God, I I pray that you would help us to take a step back and evaluate how we approach you, how we see you. That God, every time we come together as a group that we could, we could truly say of our hearts and minds that we have eagerly anticipated this moment to come together. That when we are in groups of one, of, of two or three in our homes, in passing, that we could eagerly anticipate celebrating our relationship with you. That we would be a people who become humble and just and peace. God, that you would change us in a way that we can't imagine being changed. In Jesus' name, amen. 
so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint.